0: become our friend on Facebook. Post on our wall your thoughts about our shows and network. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. The following
1: program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit VoiceAmericaVariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live internet talk radio. Visit VoiceAmerica.com. The views and ideas expressed in the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff and management.
2: Welcome to In the Psychologist's Chair with host Dr. Raymond Hamden. Our program will feature global guests joining Dr. Hamden for a psychological interview. And through their experiences, you will explore the human depth of understanding their purpose. Now, here is your host, Dr. Raymond Hamden.
3: I'm Dr. Raymond Hamden, and you are in the psychologist chair. Today's guest is the head of the Department of Psychology at the University in al Ain, United Arab Emirates. The university is the UAE University and the Faculty of Human and Social Studies, Department of Psychology, Chairman, Dr. Fedwa Al Mulhairbi. Dr. Fedwa, welcome to the studios.
4: Thank you. We're for really delighted
3: me. that you're with us today, and your English is impeccable because you were a graduate student and did your doctorate's degree. At the State University of New York.
4: Yes, I did.
3: You don't seem old enough to have a PhD. All you young people have PsyDs.
4: Yes, well, I have very good genes, actually. So <laughs> <laughs> I'm not that young, but thanks to my genes.
3: <laughs> okay, well, thanks you for bringing your genes with you, and the phd that you have is actually in psychobiology yes a lot of people think that psychology is always clinical but there's many many different size, kinds of psychology and there's more than forty different kinds of psychology and hundreds of different subcategories Yes. your doctorate is psychobiology how do you define that
4: well uh... It used when i graduated after my graduation one year it was renamed as behavior neuroscience so maybe this can give you and you know a knowledge about what's the background of psychobiology or behavior neuroscience. Basically, we study the biological basics of behavior or biological basis of behavior. Uh, I'm very interested in neurodegenerative diseases. Uh, I try to make animal models for neurodegenerative diseases like Alzheimer, Parkinson, and try to find cure for that. So basically, it's more um, emphasizing on research.
3: You did your work in New York. And you did your master's also in psychology at SUNY. Yes. Now, your bachelor's degree was from here, yes. the University of United Arab Emirates in L.A. And interestingly, you have some very impressive research where you presented a poster about the effects of aluminum on brain cells. Yes. That was dead brain cells. Yes, That wasn't too long ago. That was October of 2006. Yes. How did you get interested in brain cells, aluminum?
4: Well, basically, I'm very interested in brain cell death, neuronal death, and what causes neuronal death in the humans and in animals. And basically, aluminum have been implicated in Alzheimer's. Uh, some people are pro, some people, you know, are against and with uh, aluminum. But basically what we discover that aluminum, when it is combined with fluoride, then it can crosses the blood-brain barrier and enters the brain. And this is the case of Alzheimer and other diseases and may cause a brain death.
3: Now, there has been a lot of talk in the past about Alzheimer's and aluminum, how does that work? Does that mean if you cook with aluminum, you're more vulnerable to Alzheimer's? What is the research yeah, on
4: Yeah, well, show? it's many different theories. Some people who used aluminum by itself without fluoride, they didn't have any evidence that it do enter the brain or it does enter the brain. But with me, when I combine it with the fluoride, it did enter the brain and we could find, you know, we could have that there's some quantity. But basically, I think it's a multifactor factor Process, you know, you have the environment. It's not like only when you cook with it, but you know, you're living in the environment and there are many toxics in the environment. There's, you know, many all these things that we are actually using and dumping our environment and we don't know what it will, you know, the effect of these things in the future. So I don't want people to be paranoid, but it's good to be environmental friendly and try to protect the, fr- the environment for your own sake and for your children's sake.
3: As a person who's a specialist in behavioral neuroscience, were you in a lot of work consulting in the United Arab Emirates, in the Middle East at large, Europe, America, Where is your consulting work taking you in this specialty?
4: Well, uh, basically, mostly we are trying to to raise awareness in the schools and in in the university. Uh, Most of the governmental places, they are trying actually, especially in UAE, they know the effects of these things and they try actually to make the environment cleaner. But, you know, it's an industrial world now Mm -hmm. and it's very difficult actually to go to the uh, industries and government and tell them stop doing this like I've been really fighting and trying to tell people don't use fluoride in toothpaste I buy uh, fluoride free toothpaste but you don't find it and when you find it it's very expensive and it's a big industry out there and it's very difficult to impose what you think and I think these things what we are trying to advise the people we are working with or when we give workshops to the government or other places is try to reduce it gradually You cannot stop it at once, you know. So basically, mainly we're interested in our students in the new generation. We're trying to tell them what to do and how to reduce the effect of these things.
3: In the late 50s, fluoride is actually introduced to the water in the United States because of teeth problems.
4: Yeah, but extra fluoride causes fluorosis. And that's the color of the teeth will be brown. And basically, fluoride does not clean the teeth. It protects the teeth from cavity. But we already have enough fluoride in our water. And we already have enough fluoride in our food. Many food contains fluoride. You know, many kinds of juice contains fluoride. Many kinds of food contains fluoride. And the, fa- the amount of, uh, available in the water is more than enough. If you add extra fluoride, the teeth will be brown, you know. So basically, uh, you can have uh, another thing that will protect the teeth from cavity other than fluoride, because we have already enough in the water. And uh, some studies say you don't even need that high amount. The amount in the water is like the, the minimum required by the FDA, but actually you can even reduce it because even the mineral water has a fluoride. So Psychology has
3: come a long way. It's not just working with people's minds. Now it's actually the bodies as well. Yes, so does. that's why we look at the psychology definition as being the scientific study of the way people think, feel, and behave, as well as the body and how the body is working and affects our psychology and the environment. And you bring in all of that together as a psychobiologist.
4: It's, It's an amazing field. I really love it because, I mean, you can study anything. You can study cancer, and you're still a biopsychologist.
3: And yeah. you're also applying all your studies to real life that helps people,
4: well, yeah, but it makes my daughters mad at me. And my <laughs> my elder daughter, she's nine years old, and she keeps telling me why you're not like the other mummies. You know, why you keep telling us, you know that this is not good. This has a fluoride. They know about fluoride. They know about, and they wanted to buy this children toothpaste, and I give them also children toothpaste with, you know strawberry, but it's like with without fluoride. And they're like, you know, just let us live. You know, I'm like, you know,
3: I want to let you live. That's why I'm doing
4: this.
3: (laughs) Psychology is quite an interesting field. And interesting, too, is why people go into psychology. You were born in Libya. You lived there for how many years?
4: Um, Eight. When I was eight years, I moved out of Libya.
3: And you moved to where? To UAE. So you've been in the United Arab Emirates since you were eight years old.
4: Yeah, I don't ask about the year, okay? <laughs> I'm not going to. Because it <laughs> uh, must
3: have been only about 5 or 6 yeah, years ago. Yeah, about of 10 years ago. 10 years ago. But American.
4: actually my father was the first ambassador assigned here. He was the first Arab and foreigner ambassador in UAE and from uh, Libya. From Libya. Under and
3: which regime?
4: It was under Gaddafi regime. Gaddafi was just in new. It was in 71 or 72 and he was still okay. And my father, during the king days, it was a kingdom. My father was a member of the parliament. And he was Mm -hmm. also a politician. And he was also a businessman. He had his own, you know, like a factory and this. And then when he was assigned uh, by Gaddafi to be the ambassador, we came and we moved to UAE. We stayed here for about four or five years. In Abu Dhabi. In Abu Dhabi. Then we moved to Pakistan for three years. Then my father tried Gaddafi start, you know, going really weird. So my father wanted to resign. As a
3: psychologist, I'm surprised you're even using the word weird. Yeah, because (laughs) you don't want to use the diagnostic term. (laughs) I don't want to use the diagnostic
4: (laughs) term. And uh, then basically my father wanted to resign from Ministry of Foreign Affairs and work. There was a project between Libya and Abu Dhabi and uh, UAE to build Islamic centers in Africa. And they needed a director in the first center that was in Rwanda. And my father said, I will volunteer. And he wanted to resign from Ministry of Foreign Affairs. And they wouldn't let him. They said, OK, you can go work for Abu Dhabi government, UAE government, but we'll still keep your name as an ambassador in the Ministry of Foreign Affairs. Uh, but since then, our like relation, political relation with Libya, sort of my father, drew himself out. And uh, we stayed in Africa, between Africa and uh, when Abu When you say Dhabi. you
3: stayed in Africa, you mean you stayed in which country? Rwanda. OK, fine. But Kigali. you did not go back to the African country, Libya, no, again. No, no. When was the last time you were there?
4: 89.
3: And that was the last time you could go there politically?
4: No, not politically. After, actually, in 89, there was an embargo because of the Lu Kirby uh, problem between Libya and uh, the world.
3: Mm-hmm. And they
4: were an embargo against Libya. And then, uh, actually, my father had a hip replacement, and he couldn't. The only way to go to Libya was through, you know, Egypt for us, because I'm from Benghazi originally. And my father couldn't. He had a hip replacement, and he couldn't drive all the way. So usually, my brothers, my elder brothers and sister, they would come from Libya and visit us here or in Egypt. We used to meet in Egypt.
3: So they would be allowed to travel freely.
4: Uh, Well, they used to, yeah, they used to drive or by ships, but not by planes during the embargo.
3: So it was less difficult to get through by water or by land than by air. Yeah. Now, you were educated in the United States. When you went for your graduate studies in the United States, had you been in the United States before that?
4: Well, just for a visit. I had my elder brothers and sisters. They graduated from the States, from Colorado and from Missouri. And we went for a trip when we used to live in Pakistan for like about 25 days a trip to the States. So actually, I've never lived longer than that, it was only a trip.
3: So your first time to the United States was not as a student, it was actually as a family member visiting. So you lived as a diplomatic child.
4: Yes, I did (laughs) for a long time.
3: And is that the reason you had to become a psychologist?
4: (laughs) (laughs) Well uh, actually it's more like a family reason. Um, I had my uncle. I have one uncle and one aunt and my uncle who's the youngest he have some psychological disorder. And sewing him growing up, actually, he was away. He he used to live alone, but I, I, I he used to come once in a while. And sometimes he used to be, uh, like, away for a long time in his own house. And my father, it, I could see how it really hurted my father, but, we, you know. And that was the only reason, actually, the main reason that I wanted to be a psychologist. Still, I didn't become a clinical psychologist. And mm-hmm. my uncle is the one person that I could never, you know like see him after I graduated or did something but that's
3: not an unusual unusual kind of a reason for people to go into psychology usually the ideology of going to psychology is because there is an issue yes. and we're going to be talking more about you and your personal life we're going to be talking about what encouraged you into psychology from this uncle's kind of behavior mm-hmm. and we're delighted to have you Dr. Fedwa I'm Dr. Raymond Hamden and you are in the psychologist chair we're going to be back in just a moment
1: views, different topics, questions, answers, answers, news, and advice. You'll want to check out Ecoman and the Skeptic live from Philadelphia University. Every week, join hosts Rob Fleming and Chris Pastor as they tackle a different topic on sustainability. You'll hear all sides of the issue supported by guests who provide valuable insights. Get ready to be engaged, educated, and entertained when you tune into Ecoman and the Skeptic. Broadcast live every Wednesday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time on the Green Talk
2: You are listening to In the Psychologist's Chair with Dr. Raymond Hamden and his featured guests. We'd love to hear from you via email at info at info. That email address again is info at info. Now, back to Dr. Raymond Hamden.
3: I'm Dr. Raymond Hamden, and we're back in the psychologist's chair with Dr. Fedwa el and she is the chair of the Department of Psychology at the United Arab Emirates University in El Hain, United Arab Emirates. Psychology is a very interesting field, it attracts many people, it has many different specialties and subspecialties. At the time, you chose psychobiology. Your uncle, I would assume it's your dad's brother, the way you yes, were yes. referring to, so your paternal uncle, yes. had some kind of psychological disorders. Mm-hmm. And that attracted you to the field because you were so curious, I would imagine from the way you were describing it, that you wanted to look for a cure?
4: Yeah. Uh, my uncle actually, of course, when, when I living at that time, I knew from my mother and father that, you know, he had really weird acts, and uh, of course, they didn't understand exactly, uh, but he took him, my father tried his best to take him to doctors, and eventually after when I went to the university on psychology, I discovered actually it was not a psychological disorder, but he had a schizophrenia and uh, but but i remember when my father took him to england and uh, one doctor diagnosed him and went to my father and said you know your brother is really responsible for everything he did and he's just so cunning so don't give him a chance and my father was so hurt and when i studied and i i you know i was telling all the symptoms and i could analyze and know what's going on with him i felt really bad you know i felt really bad of course i explained to my father and to my mother what was going on but uh, you know uh, there was like so many so little awareness about mental the difference between mental and psychological disorders and about psychological disorders in general and about psychology in general and uh, of course as you said being away from my country and traveling from one place to another and meeting different people and you know different acts, you know, seeing different act from different people every time. Uh, this makes the person uh, more interested in psychology.
3: The chemical disorder that your uncle suffered from or the cognitive disorder or emotional disorder, whatever is still out because the jury's not back yet on which one schizophrenia actually is, whether yes. it's psychiatric, psychological,
4: cognitive, huh? or
3: cognitive or any of those that can all be put into the same sphere. Where is your uncle now?
4: He's in Libya. He always lived. I mean, he live. he lives alone, but uh, he always come and visit the family. And uh, I have an older sister who's like very affectionate and very, very kind. And whenever he gets sick, he just go and stays with her in her home. And uh, she tried her best to make him live with her. But whenever he feels okay, he just go. He has his own house, you know, and he stays in his own house but we all i mean my my nieces nephews and my brothers and sisters, they they always look after him
3: is that the most significant early memory you have is that of your uncle
4: yes yes the most uh, the most significant memory i had is when he came back we were visiting libya from mm-hmm. i think uae or africa and he came to our house and uh, he saw me and he hugged me and he started crying because he didn't see me since i was young and uh, I remember that he was telling my father, I'm sure I never believed you when you said something wrong with me. I'm sure that there's something wrong with me. I hear voices and then I look, there is nobody. And I see things and I tell people and then I come and there is nothing, you know. So obviously he was talking about hallucination and mm-hmm. delusions. And... Uh, but I remember when my mother was talking, when he used to live with them. And I mean, all of us, we have such a uh, love for him, but we know we can't do anything, especially now. It's it's too late. And before there were not much awareness about his illness. And uh, my family did the best according to their knowledge. They took him out, they tried to help him. But um, I think this makes me realize how it's important to make people aware about this you know, psychological, chemical, or cognitive. Uh, problems and make people, you know, sort of uh, know how to deal with them and where is the area and who's responsible. I mean, where they can go to ask to seek help.
3: Your family seems to be very close. Yes, we are. And how many brothers and sisters are there?
4: We are five brothers and three sisters.
3: Eight children. Eight children. And your number, which?
4: Well, um, I am the one before the last.
3: So you're the seventh of eight children.
4: Yeah, but uh, there are big age difference between me and my older brothers, and I'll tell you a very interesting story if you have time. When I was seven years old, I remember, I mean, we always lived, before I come to UAE, I came to UAE when I was eight years old. And uh, before when I was seven years old or six, I remember I had an, my auntie, my father's sister, she used to live in Derna. that's about three hours away by car from Benghazi, or two hours. And whenever she used to come to us, My sister Zainab and my sister uh, Amina used to call her Ummi, and that means mother. Mm -hmm. And then I asked my sister Huda, and I told her why Amina and Zainab keep telling, calling my auntie Ummi. And she told us, she told me that Fedwa, auntie, Zainab is not our sister. Zainab is our cousin, and that's her mother. But her father died when she was six months old, and Mm. she was raised in our house, and her mother remarried so that's why, and I mean out of respect, because you know they used to live together. And then she said, by the way, Fadwa, we are also half siblings. Like five of us, our, my father used to be married before my mother to another lady, and she died when my elder five brother and sisters, you know, she died. And uh, then after a year, my father married my mother.
3: So, so actually, I have five.
4: It's the three of us, and mm-hmm. I have five, like three brothers and two sisters.
3: Who are half brothers. Yeah. And
4: sisters. So I remember I was so shocked because. But I you never,
3: never were raised that way.
4: I never. My parents never told me, and I. And never, this is
3: very typical of the Arabic countries, yes, yes. where family is family. There's no such thing as a half brother. There or is half no sister. such thing as. You not. are raised
4: as one equally. family, yes. and uh, it's
3: also uh, interesting to note in the Middle East, particularly with the Arabic families, that whether the Arabic families are Jewish Arabs, Christian Arabs, or Muslim Arabs, they grow up as one family, and brothers and sisters and first cousins grow up on the same level. Yes. So your first cousins are very much like your own brothers and sisters.
4: Yeah, you never feel the difference. You know, you visit each other. For me, because, you know, we used to travel. But for me, my brothers and sisters, I never, even when my sister told me that, that was the end of it, you know. And then I start remembering how I have two maternal aunts by the same name. (laughs) So like, <laughs> I'm like, you know, I never realized that. Maybe they, have they were work. twins. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> but, but you know, like the, uh, the Jewish and the Christians, I have many Jewish and Christian friends. Uh, the Arab Jew and the Arab Christians, they're exactly the same culture, the same tradition. So, I mean, you don't feel that they are Christians.
3: This so, is what many around the world don't recognize mm. is they think that the Arab world has one particular religion and that's it. Yes. They don't realize that it's the culmination of all the Abrahamic religions yes. who actually live in peace yes. yes, until a third party comes in and ruins yes. it for
4: them. And tell them. them that you know you shouldn't live in peace. <laughs> <laughs>
3: exactly. So hopefully people will be going to live in peace again. <laughs> yes. But it's, uh, it's quite endearing that you grew up in North Africa. You were born and raised there until the age of eight. But then your formative years, your impressionable years, were in the Gulf countries. So you've had your Arabic world and ended up in the United States for your education. It must be quite an impressive amount of information that goes through your head Yeah. in social psychology. <laughs>
4: I know, I should have gone to social psychology. I also lived in Pakistan three years, and I speak, read, and write oh, Urdu. I was getting
3: to that, if you so actually do speak Urdu. So I have the Asian Urdu.
4: influence, and I have lots of my best friends are Indian and Pakistani. And, you know, my brother and sister, my elder brother and uh, my sister, Huda, they are deaf. So I speak also sign language and my sister Huda is one of my best friends. We used to share secrets and, you know, whenever she's there, I used to talk to her and forget everybody. So most of the people thought I'm deaf as well because I used only to speak with her. Mm -hmm. So it's really interesting um, uh, to to travel all over the world and to see that some people would have some biases and some prejudice against against certain kind of, you know, nationality or people or group. And uh, I, I consider myself very lucky. Because I traveled all the way, all over the world. And, you know, I have this different kinds of people in my own family, you know, and I have my best friends from different countries. And it makes me, and I was biased and prejudiced at one time in my life, you know, and I think it's natural. But I think people should overgrow, you know, should grow that and should know that despite what we do, we are all the same.
3: And when we go through our teenage years, the three things that we have to do as teenagers is find our own identity, learn to be independent, and find emotional stability. So you start questioning a lot of things.
4: Yeah, and my own identity, my God, you know, going through all of this since I was eight years old, it was really difficult for me to find my own identity. And uh, it was really like, you know, okay, I'm Libyan, but, you know, when I go to Libya, I feel sort of stranger, if, especially if my sister Huda is not there. When my sister Huda is there, then you know we just talk all the time. So
3: well, thank goodness for Skype. You can still talk.
4: Yes, thank goodness. So basically, but at that time we didn't have a Skype. But my sister was with us, and uh, basically it's really interesting when you when you look you know, at yourself, and you try to find where do you belong. I loved UAE so much. I lived my childhood here. And in the same time, I love Libya. And then when I go there, I miss my friends and my home here. So it was really sort of a conflict. And when you are young, it seems like such a difficult thing. Now, when I look back at it, I'm like, it was like, it was really fun. But at that time, it was like, you know, who am I, you know, what I really want to do where I want to live. And it was really interesting experience.
3: You were born in Libya, but you hold a UAE citizenship.
4: Yes. So UAE for me is home. I lived here since I was eight years old. And I am I love Libya. It's my home as well. And uh, it's very difficult to explain to people how can you be so, you know, um, so, so loving. Yeah, passionate about the same two countries, you know. But I lived in UAE. I have the citizenship. I have my home here in Al Ain. So Al Ain is my country, it's my home. When I'm in Al Ain, I'm so relaxed. Yeah, Al Ain
3: is a suburb of Abu Dhabi. A lot of people think it's its own emirate, yeah. but it's actually a suburb of the nation's capital here. Yes. And it's a, it's a beautiful place. It's actually the garden community as well as the university center. It's mm-hmm. actually the origins of the university here. When you were growing up, you lived part of your life in Pakistan. Which part of your life was that in Pakistan?
4: In Islamabad. Uh, I lived in Islamabad in the 70s, and we, after a few months of our arrival, the revolution al Haq, al Haq make revolution against uh, uh, Bhutu, and then, you know, we had to live the next stage of Pakistan, mm-hmm. you know, during al Haq time.
3: Yeah. I'm Dr. Raymond Hamden. We're in the psychologist chair with Dr. Fedwa, the chair of the Department of Psychology at the United Arab Emirates University. We'll be back.
1: Voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. Looking for a top show about horse racing and handicapping? Looking to play the ponies? Join us every week for Winning Ponies with Ed Meyer. This show is the perfect complement to the Winning Ponies website, where you'll go inside and behind the scenes with the top jockeys, trainers, agents, and handicappers in the world of horse racing. Listen for top plays for the weekend in the spot play of the week and win prizes just for listening. Winning Ponies with Ed Meyer is live Thursdays at 5 p.m. Pacific, 8 p.m. Eastern on the Voice
0: America Sports Network is your computer making your life easier or more of a headache are you using all of the tools to make your life more productive and less of a stress you need to listen to the microsoft princess insider with melanie goss dubbed the microsoft princess melanie has been a certified expert in all things microsoft since 1998 and her expertise will have you taking back control of your life and letting your computer handle the efficiency of day-to-day projects The Microsoft Princess Insider airs live every Tuesday morning at 9 a.m. Eastern Time, 6 a.m. Pacific on Voice America Variety.
1: News. News. Opinion. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com.
0: You
2: are listening to in the psychologist chair with dr raymond hamden and his featured guests we'd love to hear from you via email at info at in the psychologist chair dot info that email address again is info at in the psychologist chair dot info now back to dr raymond hamden
3: I'm Dr. Raymond Hamden, we're in the Psychologist Chair, and Dr. Fedwa Al-Murabi is with us from the Department of Psychology, United Arab Emirates University. You were born until the age of eight you lived in Libya. You were raised primarily in the United Arab Emirates with a few years in Pakistan, and then you did your master's degree and doctor's degree in the United States. You've lived in two hemispheres. You speak several languages, English, Arabic, sign language, as well as Urdu.
4: A little French. I'm not so perfect in French, but a little bit.
3: (laughs) Because Rwanda,
4: sorry, when we lived in Rwanda, the main language was French.
3: Rwanda, you were there for quite a while as a diplomatic family?
4: Uh, No, not as a diplomatic family, but my father worked there in the Islamic Center, and he stayed there for about 7 or 8 years so but we stayed with him continuous 2 years and then we came to UAE on 82 for my university and we were only going visiting in the summer and holidays so
3: you were not there in the 90s during that terrible the atrocity massacre, no did you have people that you knew that yes, were part of that tragedy
4: yes, yes unfortunately
3: and here you are a person whose home in Libya where you were born and raised until you were 8 is Benghazi yes a city under siege. Yep. What does that feel like today?
4: Well, actually, I feel very proud. My brothers and sisters, they used to go for uh, civil uh, disobedience, and uh, they're working a lot, and every day they used to go out, and, my, and we couldn't sleep till we called them, and we are sure that they are back home safely. And they saw many people dying in front of their eyes. My brother and sister till now, and their families, they're very active, you know. And uh, I, I feel very sad about what happened, but I think it's about time, and I feel very proud that my family was part of it.
3: As a psychologist, I'm sure you have a lot to say about the so-called leader of that country. You yeah. don't even have to be a clinician to figure out there's something no, yeah. clinically wrong Every, every
4: single Libyan is a good psychologist when it comes to Gaddafi. <laughs> <laughs> every single Libyan, they could really analyze his personality really mm. well, and in Benghazi, especially like they they saw a lot from Gaddafi because they used always to try to make revolution against him. They are always writing stuff against him. So really, the people of Benghazi and the East in general, they suffered a lot from Gaddafi. And he used to hate them, obviously, for certain reasons. But uh, everybody, every single Libyan, all over Libya, people suffered for 42 years. And, you know, freedom has its price. So it's about time.
3: I'm going to take a psychologist out on the psychologist's limb. So we're going to take Dr. Fedwa out on the psychologist's limb here. Let's make it an olive tree, an olive branch. I'm going to take you out on that limb. You're going to be put as president of Libya for the purposes of today's show. (laughs) What are you going to do?
4: A lot. Uh, Libya needs a lot. But I'm sure I'm so happy that the Libyan people can help me when I'm a president. Because basically everybody who they made the revolution, every single person, they really suffered a lot. And once the revolution happened, they really started cleaning their area and they start to unite again. So I think what I'm going to do, I'm going to, first of all, develop democracy and try to treat people equally and give them the chances that they have been deprived from. You know, Libya is not 100 percent Arab. We have Arab and we have Amazigh. You know, and I'm so happy that the new uh, transient council he called it he recalled a Jamahiriya to Libya Republic without putting Arab. You know, it's about thirty more than thirty percent of the Libyans are from Amazigh. You know, so basically, I think they are going on the right track, and I can just help them out if I was the president.
3: There's a Lebanese American professor named Dr. Kamel Yagzan. He was a medical student at AUB, American University of Beirut. He could only get through the second year of medical school. He hated blood so much, he ended up dropping out of medical school and getting his doctorate's degree, a PhD (laughs) in biomedicine (laughs) because he couldn't handle the blood. blood, One of the stories that he so fondly tells is his experience as a professor in Libya. At one time, Libya was considered to be one of the academic junctions in not only the Arab world, but Africa and Europe as well. Yes. Where is that? What are you going to do with the educational system of Libya? What's happening to the people today? Well, actually,
4: the education system in Libya is not so bad. He tried to ruin it. But people still continue. People who, uh, the university graduates of Libya, they are really good. You know, their standards are really good. They are self-educating themselves. Uh, Libyans, they have so much ambition. And uh, this 42 years couldn't kill that. Ambition couldn't get whatever they wanted to do. And basically, I have my cousins, my brothers, my sisters, all of them. They graduated from Libya and they are much smarter than I, and I feel really inferior in front of them because they really, they did something out of nothing. You know, they're studying, they are educating themselves, and uh, they go outside and they finish their master, PhD, and they are really, we have very good scientists, you know. And they come back to Libya. Well, some of them, they come back. Some of them, Gaddafi wants to kill them, so they are like, you know, they are away from Libya. But uh, now, many people, they came even during the war. Many people, they came to Benghazi and they tried to help.
3: It's interesting in human nature that people need to have food and water, but people also want to thrive, and one of the vehicles for thriving is education, yes. and the Libyans have shown that. Unfortunately, there's not that much publicity yeah. around intelligent Libyans as yourself, your family, and many of the friends who you obviously know, and others who you may not know, but do want to pursue an education, and they want the educational system to be the cornerstone of society. Yes. Your investment as a psychologist is in biological understanding of psychology, and you continue educating. What was your motive? Who was your motivator? Who is your mentor that kept you in the educational arena?
4: Yeah, when I graduated from the university, I worked in Tom Hospital in Lain as a psychologist, uh, not actually a psychologist, but a social and psychologist worker. And uh, for four years. And that's when I decided, because before I really was interested in clinical psychology. And uh, I even tried to go to pursue my education, higher education, clinical psychology. And then when I was working with the patients, I said, you know, I really don't want to just, you know, talk to the people. I want to know why they turned out like that. I want to know why they have these problems, you know. And then I decided to do something in special education. Eventually, I figured out that, you know, behavior neuroscience will help me. It, it will give me an insight. I can really look at the people and know what kind of chemical problems they, they have, why the brain cells die. And that's how I went to biological psychology because I thought for me, it's the best thing for me. I didn't want just to follow, read the theories and know these people are having these things happening in their brain biologically or whatever. I wanted to be part of the research. And I think for me, uh, that was very important. It was very important to study these things. It was very important to do experiments and to try to find a cure for different brain damage areas. I didn't know when I was studying that that ten years or five years after that my father will have a brain hemorrhage and I'll be like you know, knowing what's going on with him. It was really interesting for me.
3: That is interesting about being a psychologist. Everything that happens to you, you go through the process of trying yeah. to understand it psychologically as well. Was it helpful for you to know what was biologically going on with your dad when he suffered the...
4: Very much. Radiation? I was having an experiment, and I had a very good mentor, Dr. Bob Isaacson. Uh, I think for me he was the best mentor ever. And, uh, at SUNY. At SUNY Binghamton. And mm-hmm. uh, he had, my father had a brain hemorrhage, uh, and I went to Switzerland to be with him with my brother. And Bob was very supportive. He used to tell me, take your time. I was doing my master. I had my animals. And he said, we'll just... Get rid of this study, don't worry, we'll do another study because I stayed for about three months and a half. And he said, Don't worry about anything and just take care of your father. And but since he was in coma, he was in coma for about two months and a half, I could understand what he gonna lose and what he will stay what he will keep from his, you know, cognitive abilities. And uh, because I knew the area, it was my specialty, the area that had been damaged. Which area is that? Well, he had damaged sort of in the limbic system, in the hippocampus. Mm. And that's associated, yeah, it was associated uh, with the, actually it's in the forebrain, but towards the midbrain. And it's associated with memory and emotions. So I was telling my mother when he was in coma, like, you know, He will be fine. He will just have some problems with his short-term memory. But he will be really, his temper, you know, will be like, you know, really agitated, but he will Mm -hmm. forget really fast. But we were scared that he will be paralyzed or something, but he was fine.
3: He came out of two and a half months of coma?
4: And when he came out, he could remember he spoke Italian, he spoke English, and he wrote poems. And he could do this.
3: That in itself is a miracle, isn't it? Yes.
4: The doctor th- thinks, though, so, because the doctor came after, like, 15 days. The same doctor, he who saw him, and he said, after three days he will die. Why did you bring him to Switzerland? After 15 days he came, he talked to him in, in Italian, and my father answered in Italian. Sorry, not after 15 days, after two months or something, and he looked at us and said, you know, this is a miracle.
3: As the daughter Fedwa, and the daughter happens to be Dr. Fedwa, do you believe that he was actually able to process things in the environment cognitively while he was in a coma
4: Uh, i wanted to believe so i can't speak as a doctor yes that's the doctor fedwa but you know uh scientifically also speaking we don't know a lot about the brain you know but you you could feel some kind of movement you know in the uh, in the gram when some people are around him and talking you know, and even when he was sort of, you know, opening his eyes, he's still in a coma, but his eyes after two months, he just opened his eyes. We used to open the TV and he's just to, you know, he, he didn't talk, but he used to follow us, you know, and something was going on in the brain. brain is a still a big mystery, you know, and I believe like when he was in the coma, if you were not active around him and we were not talking to him during all these two months, probably he wouldn't have been the same. You know, but we were talking to him. My brothers used to come from Libya. You know, we used to like everybody like had shifts and we used to talk to him. We used to, you know, uh, pray for him. We used to open the TV for him and just talk, having regular chats. And I think that helped.
3: I'm not going to mention to the audience that when you were talking about uh, the brain injury, you looked right at me and <laughs> 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 we're going to skip that part. <laughs> And with that, we're going to be right back. I'm Dr. Raymond Hamden. We're in the psychologist chair with Dr. Fedwa.
1: Talk, talk, talk. That's all we do is talk. If you'd like to talk, call us toll free right now at 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. That's it. That's it. VoiceAmerica.com.
0: Get your weekly wake-up call for The Oblivious. Tune in every week for Rant and Rave Radio with your hosts, Nathan, Jetstream Jet, and Mike, Hardcore Elmore. Nothing is off our table. In fact, there's more on it than we care to talk about. It's a common-sense perspective on the people and happenings going on around us every single day. Leave it to Mike and Nathan to educate you on politics and society. Tune in to Rant and Rave Radio every Thursday night at 5 p.m. Pacific Time, 8 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America Variety Channel. and listen to CIO Talk Radio with Sanjo Gall. Listen in every Wednesday at 9 a.m. Central, 7 a.m. Pacific, right here on Voice America Business. News. News, News
1: Opinion. Your me, voice me, counts. Me, me. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com.
2: You are listening to In the Psychologist's Chair with Dr. Raymond Hamden and his featured guests. We'd love to hear from you via email at info at info. That email address again is info at inthepsychologistchair.info. Now, back to Dr. Raymond Hamden.
3: I'm Dr. Raymond Hamden, In the Psychologist's Chair with Dr. Fedwa El-Moghrabi, is the chair of the Department of Psychology United Arab Emirates University. Born and raised until the age of eight in Libya, lived a lot of her youth in the United Arab Emirates. Being of a diplomatic family, she also lived in Pakistan and Rwanda before getting her master's degree and doctorate's degree in psychobiology from the State University of New York. I'm going to talk about you personally by asking you some personal questions. Mm -hmm. With being the seventh of eight children, a very active, intelligent family, your style of communicating, are you an introvert where you keep things to yourself, think about it before you say anything? Or are you the extrovert who says, I'm going to be transparent, everybody's going to know what I'm thinking and I'm feeling?
4: No, I was more introvert. I was very shy. Uh, Thank God I had my best friend, my sister Huda. So I used to talk to her and my younger In brother, In sign Jihad. language. In sign language. But my younger brother, Jihad, was also, there's five years difference between us. So when he grew up, he was I was like a mother to him. I felt like he's like my son. And he, he is my best friend as well. So these two people helped me. Like, you know, I used to talk to them. But I had also a lot of friends, you know. But I was very choosy whom to choose to be my friend. I used, very open, I used to be very open with my friends but when I used to go outside and with the strange people I used to be really introvert and I used to feel shy.
3: When it comes to your perception of the world around you do you like details and facts or you're the person who says I like to be creative I want to put my head up in the clouds and come up with all kinds of imaginative creative things?
4: It's. Uh, I think I'm both. You know, being a I'm, I used to write poems and I paint sometimes. But I'm also a scientist. So when you go into science, you love to look at details and you're like, does it really work this way? But also sometimes this kills the creativity. So you try sometimes to leave everything. So I think when it comes to science, to school, to teaching, I'm a little bit. You know to the details but when it comes to my way of teaching and how to deal with these things I try to be more creative. Which
3: is your preference? You, if you had to do only one or the other would you be the creative one or would you be the facts and details one?
4: Well I learned that there's something called the gray. you can be always in the middle. <laughs> you're not gonna answer the question are you? <laughs> there's always something in the middle. You are you cannot... sure you're not a clinical
3: psychologist? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> what about when it comes to decision-making? Are you the person who puts your emotions into it? you like to put in your personal values? Or are you the person who says, I'm going to compartmentalize all my emotions and I'm just going to be thinking about things because that's the way you are fair and objective?
4: Uh, I try to be more emotional. I, I, I try to use my heart, not only my, my brain. You know what? Because sometimes when you are very logical, you miss very important points. And basically, I learned from experience that, and from my study, that the frontal prefrontal lobe have something like, you know, when you say the guts feeling, Mm -hmm. this is the emotional part of decision making. So it's very important to think about sometimes with your emotion, not extreme emotions, be fair, but you should also think about your emotions.
3: Neuropsychological research also shows that women's brain cells tend to be more enmeshed. Men's brain cells tend to be more compartmentalized. Now, not every man has compartmentalized brain. Not every woman has Enmeshed brain cells, which means that women tend to be more intuitive, men tend to be more concrete. But again, that's only what is implied. Men can also be intuitive, women can also be concrete. You're talking about an area of the brain that is more responsible for what is being referred to as that gut feeling.
4: Yes, and I'm talking also about uh, when you talk about the differences between men and women, you know. Uh, many men are. I mean, they they love to be like you know. They are only thinking about their brains, but actually, many men they think like women. They are very emotional, and uh, this is the difference between the brain. Actually, more the left-handed men are more. Their brains are more like women brains. You know, they are symmetrical. You know, they can. Uh, they are good in many different areas. They can do multitasking. You know, probably. So this that one. means that
3: women should find left-handed men.
4: Yes, uh, they'll be very happy couple. <laughs> 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 not In that really. case, The left hand will know what the right no, hand is doing. Really. Is that what you But I to? think this is this is about woman being a mom and she needs to do mm-hmm. multitasking when you are a mom. But basically, I think now because most of the women they are they are working, they are scientists. Uh, many of them they tend to think you know like more logically and try to take the emotions uh, away. But isn't it
3: true that even left-handed people, three percent, tend to to be right-brained, where uh, the ninety-seven percent are still left-brained, even yeah. though they're left-handed.
4: Yes. Yes.
3: And that's that uh,
4: th- th- That's basically ab- uh, about the Broca. I mean, when you talk about right brain or left brain, you're talking about the Broca area and where you rise. Which is or, frontal lobe. Yes, uh, yeah, in the frontal lobe. And basically it's, um, you know, some people it's in the right, some people it's in the left. But uh, we are talking also about the symmetry of the brain. Are the two parts, the left hemisphere and the right hemisphere, exactly the same? Are there yeah. are differences. I'm so. still going to
3: ask you some personal things.
4: <laughs> okay, so I couldn't get away from it. Though. Not willing <laughs> to do that,
3: Doctor <laughs> Fedwa. You have too much to offer the audience. Okay. Education is obviously a very important element for you. You and I had an opportunity to work together a few years ago when the Dubai government asked us to be on the psychology SME panel, and we were putting together the laws, the ethics, the scope of practice. You've taken that another step, or even two. You're bringing in a graduate school program to the university in Align. UA University, starting this September 2011, will have its first graduate school program that'll be recognized internationally.
4: In the clinical psychology, yes.
3: And in clinical psychology. It's it's the first
4: in clinical psychology. It's the first in our department.
3: Are you requiring people to have a master's degree to get into doctorates, or can they go from bachelor's to doctorates? Uh,
4: We have a PhD program in the university, and uh, they can go directly from the bachelor's degree to the, the, you know, uh, master and PhD. It's a PhD program, but there is, you know, uh, a combined actually, yeah where they but for the master, the masters the way. yeah, but to in our department, we meet the first uh, master in clinical psychology, and of course, they have to be bachelor graduates to enter our department. And uh, I'm very happy. I have a very good team. you know, I couldn't have done it alone, I have a very good team, and we are also initiating a family with being a clinic. Hopefully, we can offer uh, psychological and counseling services to the society. Which is a great soon. place to
3: train your students.
4: Very good. Very good place, actually. How many
3: faculty do you have now?
4: Well, my department is the biggest in the college. So basically, we have about 22 faculty members. <laughs> and um, they are very good. They're very smart.
3: And most of them are internationally educated.
4: Most of them, yeah. Uh, most of my colleagues, they graduated either from USA or from England.
3: And their educational systems that, were, that you're putting together here. It'll be internationally recognized. So it'll be recognized in the United States, in yes. England, in India, the Philippines, everywhere. everywhere in the world.
4: Yeah, UA University is an internationally accredited university. And every program we try to offer, we go through very tough criteria from the university. The master program, the department have been trying to get a master program for the last 10 years. And the university used to reject it because they had very high criteria.
3: The doctoral program would it be PhD or PSYD? PhD. So you're gonna go with the PhD but that doesn't necessarily mean theoretical degree that actually is a practical degree as well. And you have enough people in the United Arab Emirates with 140 nationalities represented actively residing in the UAE. It's gonna be a haven for students to get cross-cultural psychological experience.
4: Definitely, definitely.
3: It is wonderful to have you. Thank Congratulations you. on the amazing things you're doing for the field of psychology.
4: Thank you very much.
3: And for the Middle East and bridging the West and the Eastern Hemisphere. Dr. Fedwa Morabi, Chairman of the Department of Psychology, UAE University. I'm Dr. Raymond Hamden, and you are in the Psychologist's Chair.
2: you again for joining us this week for in the psychologist chair please join dr raymond hamden for another edition next tuesday at 9 a.m u.s pacific time on the voice america variety channel until we speak again hope you enjoy your week